I'm Bonnie Glazer, director of the Asia Program at the German Marshall Fund of the United States. China's been a member of the United Nations and its Security Council since its founding. UN Resolution 2758, which gave the China seat to the People's Republic of China and expelled the Republic of China, was a turning point in the PRC's diplomatic representation and led to the normalization of relations with many countries, including the United States. Over time, China became an active participant in the UN, and its influence increased dramatically. In 2020, China headed four of the 15 principal UN specialized agencies of the UN and had its deputies in nine other agencies. Today, China heads two. In his speech at the 20th Party Congress in October, Chinese leader Xi Jinping said that, quote, China is firm in safeguarding the international system with the United Nations at its core, reiterating the importance that China attaches to the UN in the international system. Beijing's agenda in the United Nations provides important clues about its views of the global order and how China seeks to revise that order to defend and advance its interests. At times, China has voted alongside the United States and its allies, such as when sanctions were imposed on North Korea for conducting nuclear weapons tests. However, on other issues, such as human rights and the war in Ukraine, Beijing has adopted opposing positions. Joining us to discuss China's policy toward the United Nations is Dr. Courtney Fung. We're really thrilled to have Courtney with us today. She's an associate professor in the Department of Security Studies and Criminology at Macquarie University in Sydney, Australia. She's also an associate fellow at both Chatham House and the Lowy Institute. And her book, China and Intervention at the UN Security Council, Reconciling Status, is an outstanding study of China's engagement with the UN. Welcome to the China Global Podcast, Courtney. Thank you so much for having me, Bonnie, to come join you. And I look forward to our discussion. So, Courtney, let's just start asking this general question about why the United Nations is so important to China and its approach to the international system. And what are Beijing's primary objectives at the UN? You know, the United Nations is very important to Beijing. We have to remember that there are practical reasons for this. You know, China has a permanent seat that comes with a veto at the UN Security Council, so it can, you know, direct international peace and security affairs. The United Nations writ large is a truly global institution. You know, there is not one place that every single recognized member state can participate in. And so it's very important for Beijing in terms of coalition building, finding like-minded partners, the opportunity to learn and skill up very quickly um, in terms of cutting edge issues. You know, for example, questions about standard setting, where the environmental climate crisis responses going, you know, opportunities like this because of the UN's global reach are, you know, important for Beijing. And China's also realized that the United Nations is not just a tool for executing global governance, it is actually setting the direction of global governance. So having a say at this table is very important. So in part, there's also a real normative benefit that China wants, you know, recognition for its particular foreign policy positions. So, you know, a real position about there being a one China principle and the United Nations should be taking a position and member states in the UN supporting this. But at the same time, China is also looking much more broadly to promote itself as this key upholder of the United Nations international order. 
And so in this way, it's very important that Beijing is seen as contributing. It wants to be seen as leading, having this recognition as a great state shaping the directions of global governance. And I'd say in the last couple of years, we've seen a move away from China prosecuting sort of its more parochial interests, you know, commonly referred to as the three T's, ensuring that, you know, questions about Taiwan, questions about the Tiananmen Square incident, um, questions about Tibet remain off the UN agenda. And I would argue we're seeing a point in China's foreign policy now where Beijing is looking to have a much more broader vision for global governance, its own vision for global governance, trying to be fed into the UN system. So it's a very interesting and important time to be studying China's UN politics. Well, how does China use the UN to advance its foreign policy interests? What are the strategies that it employs? And do those strategies differ from those of other great powers? That's a great question. And I think it's important to remember two things up front. China is going to operate and has been operating in ways that are very similar to any other well-resourced, focused, and invested power, any other state that is willing to invest in the UN system, China's operating in very similar ways, i.e., you know, focusing its kinds of investments, and I'll get into that in a minute. So in that way, it's not acting in ways that are necessarily unique. But I think it's also important to note that despite, you know, a very interesting public narrative that almost paints Beijing as sort of having this role in all types of UN buckets, all types of UN agencies. I think it's important to point out that the research that, you know, myself and my co-author Shing Hon Lam at UCLA have done, it really shows that China's investments in the UN system are very targeted and strategic. So while China may have a large role in terms of funding the UN regular budget, you know, we all have heard the stats that since 2019, China is the second largest budget contributor. So remember, you know, in 2000, China was contributing about 1% of the UN regular budget. China is now contributing, you know, close to 12% by 2019. So that's a huge contribution. But if we look at other types of funding streams, China is a relatively small player. So all of that said, I think we can think about a number of levers that China uses as the system makes it available to China. So, for example, it's voting in a variety of UN spaces. And of course, China works on matters of interest to it to build coalitions to support China's positions, as any other focused state does. This is what the politicking and the horse trading is all about. Um, China has the opportunity to help try and set language and discourse that shapes the way that we think about global politics. And so we can discuss that as we get on, you know, the way that, for example, the Ukraine war is framed by various UN agencies? Should the epicenter of criticism be about the Russian invasion and the violation of the UN Charter and its principles? Or should the focus of the conversation be about the effect of sanctions and how this might be affecting global food aid distribution? And again, there's another lever that's become of more importance over time. I've talked about funding. I've talked about voting. I've talked about discourse. There's also become something of more importance that China's thinking about now, which is the actual contribution of PRC, international civil servants, and the recognition that those that do the labor of actually getting the UN, you know, off paper, out of the budget rooms and into actually into the field and doing the work at headquarters, that these officials can significantly shape global politics too. So just one small example, reporting did note that the Office of the High Commissioner's report on her investigation into human rights occurrences, human rights abuse in Xinjiang, you know, reporting noted that it was her staff 
that helped drive the push to make sure that this report came out just before Michelle Bachelet stepped down from her role. So again, you know, there's a role to be played by these international civil servants. And I think we're entering a period now where China's become more cognizant of attempts to distribute and contribute more PRC international civil servants to. So you talked a little bit about voting. Let me ask about how China has used its veto power in the UN Security Council. And has Beijing faced reputational or other repercussions from using its veto? That's a great question. So I think when it comes to the veto in the UN Security Council, again, you know, there's some very interesting you know, facts to think about. Since China, the PRC, assumed the China seat in 1971, it's been a relatively cautious veto player, casting a total of 18 votes since 1971 until about October of this year. And we have to remember, in large part, China has a caution that if it vetoes too often, other states that are also veto players in the UN system will have an argument to put forward that maybe they don't need to go through the UN system. Well-resourced global leaders like the United States might make the case that coalitions of the willing, alternate platforms like NATO might be of interest even going it alone. So pushing the system to the point that it no longer functions is also not in China's interests. But that said, you know, pointing out China's caution, and we have to remember the U.S. is casting close to 90 vetoes in this same time period. So 18 versus 90 is quite a stark difference. With all of that said, there are some changes in the way that China has been using its veto. We've seen, you know, in this last ballpark, the last decade, China has cast 10 vetoes on the Syria crisis alone really sort of drawing a very hard line on any potential resolution that could be seen as overturning Syrian sovereignty. With a real concern here that, you know, they don't want a repeat of the Libya intervention that morphed into foreign-imposed regime change, according to Beijing. So again, this sort of real push to demarcate foreign-imposed regime change, the idea of intervention morphing down that way, keeping that entirely separate. And so we really haven't seen vetoing like this. Really, China's been very cautious until this last decade of really only vetoing basically on average two times a decade. So very, very cautious. Um, It's also important to note just the last thing on this, that all of these vetoes, bar one, have been cast with Russian support. So the ability to share that criticism um, and to sort of put that weight also on Russian shoulders is very important. And we could argue that really, you know, China's threatened the use of the veto, and that there are other states that are willing to push China to actually have to cast that vote on purpose to make sure that it can understand what having international criticism looks like and having to explain itself for why it vetoed the way it did. So, you know, there's a number of dynamics moving underneath these, you know, broad veto stats. There's an ongoing discussion about reform, of course, of the UN Security Council, and we, of course, don't have a lot of time to go into the details here. But can you talk a bit about what China's view is of the proposed reforms to the UN? Is this something it's in favor of? Sure. So, you know, Bonnie, there are multiple UN reform proposals, you know, questions about whether or not, you know, there should be reform of how the veto is used at the UN Security Council, Um, questions about the types of membership. So, why aren't certain states able to have a rotating seat or a number, increasing number of seats for particular regions, for example? And again, you know, we have to remember a few things. There has been new energy put into this reform debate 
given the Ukraine war. And so you know, as of September of this year, you know, President Biden is on the record saying that, again, the U.S. backs a more inclusive United Nations Security Council, um, that U.S. is willing to only use the veto in sort of rare and extraordinary circumstances. So again, really energizing this discussion, given the fact that Russia has flat out violated the U.N. Charter. But all of that said, I think we have to remember a few things. You know, China's interested in supporting UN Security Council reform. It's on the record talking about increasing the number of seats and representation from the global south. So, for example, ensuring that there's more continuous African representation, for example. But at the same time, as we talk about these things, there are also these silences. China may not be as interested in sort of having to have further restraints on the veto. It is a relatively, relatively cautious veto player to begin with, and no great state is looking to have its veto power necessarily restrained. At the same time, you know, discussions about a more permanent position for Japan or India are very unlikely to get far with China for a variety of, you know, reasons of historical antagonism, concerns about, you know, being the biggest regional player at the council representing Asia writ large. Um, And we have to remember that while all of this discussion is going on, in a practical sense, you have to actually amend the UN Charter. So you would need to get two-thirds of the UNGA support and, again, two-thirds of members' domestic legislatures to ratify that change, including all five members of the UN Security Council. So as much as you might be interested in talking about this, It's a very safe conversation for Beijing to have because the ability to sort of wrap up all of these competing reform debates are going to be highly unlikely for this to happen anytime soon. Can you talk to us a little bit about China's funding to the UN and how it compares to other Security Council members and how it's changed over time? Sure. So as I mentioned earlier on, you know, there's a couple of things to think about. We have to think, you know, back in 2000, China was funding about 1% of the regular budget. By 2019, they'd become the second largest funder, um, funding at about 12%, and, you know, only behind the United States and having surpassed Japan. Um, China is very clear that they recognize that finance is the foundation for UN governance. And so China's ability to pay its regular contributions on time is something they're very proud of. And they also like to point out that the U.S. is the world's largest debtor. So an unfortunate moniker to give the Americans because it's actually true. And so there is this sort of, you know, real framing that because China pays, it is showing its, you know, good attitude, its real support for, you know, the U.N. system. But again, there is, you know, a more complicated picture when we start to dig a little bit deeper. And I think we have to point out that while there is the regular budget, and this regular budget is, you know, legal contribution, there's legal ramifications on what happens if you do not pay on time, we have to also remember that the vast majority of UN work now is occurring through voluntary funding, whether that's earmarked, you know, for example, the US gives ballpark about 30% of earmarked contributions, so particularly how the money can be spent. But there's also, you know, unearmarked contributions. And in this space, China's not even among the top 10 donors of either unearmarked or earmarked voluntary contributions for the last decade. China's not even in that space. The earmarked and unearmarked voluntary contributions are very important because you can target and shape how the UN is working. So I think that's an important point to remember. But the last thing to point out, I think we do have to pay attention to China's very targeted, high salience 
contributions now for these particular special funds. So when you offer this bespoke new foreign policy tool that you will in particular fund yourself. And we can talk about two of these, you know, occurring in sort of the last, you know, six or seven years. Um, So for example, China in 2015, Xi Jinping, in his address to the United Nations General Assembly, talked about establishing a UN Peace and Development Trust Fund, of which Beijing is supporting now. It's of real interest in this way because this trust fund operates a little bit different compared to other trust funds in the sense that China maintains the majority of seats in steering how this trust fund works. So right now, four PRC officials sit alongside one other representative from within the UN system. So a mix of PRC ministers and also PRC international civil servants. So this is kind of a different structure than the way that other trust funds are run. So in terms of delegating the funding. But we're looking at, you know, a trust fund of about 200 million given in planned installments that will now also stretch until about 2030 at this point. And this has a real ability to sort of shape and target the types of projects that the UN can run. So this is, you know, a very interesting development. Another example, and I'll end on this note, is, you know, China's push to now develop the UN Global Geospatial Knowledge and Innovation Center. So the UN Secretary General is very interested in trying to think about ways that the UN can rationalize and use, you know, new computing methods, AI, et cetera, to better understand, if not have a front step on the way that global governance data can help us better prepare for crises down the line. And China has volunteered to be the partner to basically funnel and use AI to try and draw inferences out of types of topographical, biological, demographic data. And China is going to be running this particular innovation center. So this is, you know, a lot of really high profile, high salience, bespoke voluntary funds that don't just go down sort of the regular voluntary contributions pathway. And I think this space will be something very interesting to watch over time. I mentioned in my intro that China has attached a lot of importance to installing its own citizens as heads of UN agencies. And that really caused concern among some other countries. There was an effort to support alternative candidates in the last few years. We saw in 2020 that a Singaporean became head of the World Intellectual Property Organization. And then this past September, an American was selected to head the International Telecommunications Union. So what impact was China really able to have on the ITU and other specialized agencies during its leadership? And is this concern warranted? Like, is Beijing really able to use these positions to advance its national interests rather than the overall interests of UN members? I think in order to get to your question, we need to unpack a few things. First off, you know, have a look at the data. And I think it's important to note, you know, as we talk about China's international civil servant contributions, it's important to note that the international civil service are assumed to work with impartiality. They're meant to be able to separate their own national interests as they work on behalf of executing UN policy. All of that said, we have to recognize that there is an interest, you know, the UN system is interested in understanding China's contributions to global governance. China has managed to lift millions out of poverty. There's an argument to be made that they will have key contributions, for example, to understanding how we can, you know, correct for world hunger through their work as they now head the UN Food and Agricultural Organization based out of Rome. 
So there is real demand, right? At the same time, China has the ability to fund. They've been a consistent player, consistently interested in the UN system. So, you know, in this way, they are going to be more engaged, per se, than perhaps other governments that might have shifting views on the UN, depending on who's in charge. But while we sort of, you know, recognize these sort of broad baselines, it's also important to note that when we look at the numbers of overall staff contributions coming out from mainland China, you know, they're looking at ballpark as of last year, about less than 1,500 overall PRC international civil servants. So that's, you know, less than 1.5% of the overall UN workforce. Just to give you a sense, you know, India and UK are contributing about 2,500 international civil servants, and the US is at about 5,500. So China's relatively low, according to sort of member benchmarks. But you've hit the nail on the head with the question when you talk about the executive leadership posts. And China's recognized that these posts are very important. These are the agents that will control their organization's day-to-day work agenda, and they will also set the strategic vision for what this agency is going to do. At the same time, you know, PRC officials are very frank that they want these, you know, PRC executive heads to be able to export China's international vision and China's, you know, ideas about foreign policy. And there's benefits to sort of having this happen with UN authority and legitimacy. So with these broad strokes, again, we have to remember the numbers show us that China's only held 13 of these posts since 1971, none of which are covering key positions on international peace and security. These are all held by Western states. And China is only just ahead of the Russians in terms of the permanent members for this type of representation. We have to also remember that China's not always been successful, so its candidates have not been elected or not been selected to have these roles. But while we say this, you know, we have to recognize that there are indicators that these officials have been able to graft particular PRC foreign policy approaches into their agencies. And I'll just offer some broad examples. So, you know, for the debate right now at the ITU, um, it's had a Chinese head, and then he's recently had his two terms and he stepped down. And the election's gone on and a U.S. candidate has been selected now, has been elected now, I should say. While there was a Chinese head at the International Telecommunications Union, arguably one of the most important global governance agencies that not a lot of us think or have heard about, frankly, he was able to sort of push the agenda to talk more about the future of the Internet, 6G, and his vision for the new IP that China wanted to offer. So again, you know, less concerns about user privacy, more concerns about the state's ability to manage data flows, to put it broadly. So that's a broad vision that then could be linked into now becoming a UN-endorsed approach. In a practical sense, you know, we read news reports that Chinese officials working within this space now as the international civil servants were able to shuffle participants at meetings, trying to boost the number of PRC voices, PRC businesses within this space as it comes to standard setting debates about the potential for new IP. Simply getting these voices on the agenda also helps shape debate. The voices in the room will help us understand what the options are. Once the minutes of the meeting close, the space for debate is also closed, right, until the next meeting begins. Beyond the ITU, we can look at the case of the Food and Agriculture Organization, now headed by a PRC international civil servant, you know, elected into this role. And again, you know, this official has been very reticent to offer direct criticism of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, taking a position far closer to China's position with real concerns about the effect of sanctions on global food aid. 
and very little to say despite a real push you know, from within the FAO and pressure from outside to actually offer direct criticism of how the war has affected um, the ability for Ukraine to send its food aid out. It is the world's breadbasket when it comes to actually sending and dispersing food aid on behalf of the FAO. Again, this official has been very reticent to talk about the ways that voting should or should not occur. Um, It's meant to be a secret ballot. And reporting had noted that in this election in 2019, that the secrets didn't appear to be so secret. There were photographs of, you know, states' ballots and how they had voted, which candidate they had voted for. And there are states that feel that this is not really what a secret ballot system is like. This head of the FAO and other like-minded states are not interested in discussing this. And some have pointed out this is because it suits them as they come to sort of politic and, you know, horse trade for the next round of voting over who might become the head of this agency. So again, taking a very particular position and attempting now to try and drive this into becoming the UN position. Again, the big caveat, though, is all of these ideas and norms and directions are always under debate. And it's not simply the case that you can do things necessarily by fiat. But if you are leading, I would say you have a much larger say over what the agenda is. And that's a very plumb position to be in. So how did China seek to influence the World Health Organization when the COVID-19 pandemic began? And was their effort effective? So I think, you know, we can observe, you know, a few efforts. You know, obviously, China made a big push to try and limit the call of a public health emergency of international concern, you know, in which they say that there is this extraordinary public health concern with risk to other states that therefore now will empower certain actions and policies to be pushed through via the WHO. China was very anxious about this being called, did not like to see this language being used, sought to delay this type of recognition of the potential COVID crisis. China also sought to limit any potential investigation by WHO officials into potential sources of COVID since it came to light in Wuhan first at the close of 2019. And where these first cases came to light, China worked very hard to sort of limit any potential investigation looking like an investigation, was very concerned about interference and also did not want to be perceived as being blamed. Again, you know, the first cases came to light in Wuhan and did not want to be seen necessarily as sort of being called the source of the virus. And of course, you know, China had real effort as it had the rotating presidency of the UN Security Council. It made a real effort to make sure that debates about COVID as a global health security concern stayed off the UN Security Council agenda. Um, And I think in many ways, the ability for the HIV AIDS concerns to have risen to the level of a global security concern, the UN Security Council played a part. And so I think that past experience is very instructive into understanding how definitions of security can morph and change over time. And so, you know, the PRC ambassador to the United Nations was very effective in terms of keeping COVID off the UN Security Council's agenda. But all of that said, you know, we also do see, you know, points of tension. So, for example, you know, the WHO chief has been very frank about his concerns about the lack of access to raw data, his calls to have a more collaborative and comprehensive sharing between China and whatever further WHO investigations might need to be held. And I think that's actually quite surprising because people had been quite critical, frankly, of the WHO leadership for not sort of pushing China more directly. But again, you know, the COVID crisis has been moving and evolving. And I think in part, 
you know, China's caution is understood. And I think China is aware that it has received, you know, questions about its leadership. And again, we've seen some new foreign policy initiatives being discussed, for example, the Global Development Initiative, in which China wants to bring the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, back front and center. They kind of dropped off the wayside as we've all been concerned about COVID. And this is really China's rhetorical effort to reposition itself as sort of a global leader. And so China's been able to sort of talk about the fact that over 100 states and even the secretary general himself are very supportive of this broad global development initiative idea. They've got 50-something states involved in the Friends of the GDI Working Group. And again, I think this is sort of a broad effort to get in front of any criticism for the way that China engaged with the WHO in particular about COVID. Let me finally ask you, Courtney, if you look forward to China's activities at the UN, whether you think that they will become increasingly influential. Do you think that Western countries are going to be able to counterbalance their influence? Should we expect new creative ways that China might try to advance its influence in the UN, like the GDI, which I think is an example of China's ways to sort of mobilize particularly developing countries in support of its growing role? So is this something we should be more worried about going forward? I mean, I'd say, Bonnie, I think, you know, we really should be paying attention and studying what China's doing in the UN system and trying to understand, you know, what China's objectives are and also trying to understand, you know, how does the UN system writ large respond? And there are factors, you know, as you note in your question, you know, there are many players in the global South that might be ideologically, economically closer in profile to China. And these are states that are interested in hearing from the PRC experience. I'm interested in also, you know, having a much larger state that views itself as still a member of the global south and having that weight that China can offer, you know, to also back their positions. At the same time, we have to recognize that there is demand from UN officials to have PRC engagement. You know, increasingly, Chinese elites are seen as being very important for the functioning of global governance. And so having an executive lead coming from mainland China as they, you know, helm a particular UN agency is not seen as a bad thing per se. It's important to have that sort of almost informal hotline with Beijing, you know, in order to shape and sort of work through the issues that we see in global politics. So there is actual demand. At the same time as we, you know, look into sort of Western decline, you know, US interest waxes and wanes depending on the administration, for example. But I think at the same time, you know, we have to recognize that We are still at sort of the point where China has a very targeted and focused interest. So, you know, it's very interested in prosecuting its particular positions through the UN Human Rights Council. It's very interested on sort of maintaining and growing its ability to shape UN Security Council agendas. But we are looking at a relatively smaller player in the UN development system. Even in the agencies like the WHO, for example, it's still a relatively smaller funder. But all of that said, it is engaged. The baseline we're starting with is a commitment to the United Nations as the center of an international order, but the recognition from China's view that the United Nations almost has to be right-sized in terms of what it offers to global governance. So, you know, China wants to sort of see the UN adapt itself to this evolving global political and economic environment we're in now, which China is believing is going to move into a more multipolar space. So I think we can really see, you know, over the next decade, I would bet 
a very committed player in particular issue areas, again, on particular human rights concerns, on matters of peacekeeping, where China is very proud of its contributions over the last decades. We're going to see a very committed player, but I think we will definitely see a player that is learning the rules of the game that are afforded to it and the ability to use these rules in its favor. And I think this is something that we need to be cognizant of. We've been talking with Dr. Courtney Fung, who is an associate professor in the Department of Security Studies and Criminology at Macquarie University in Sydney. What a fantastic discussion. Thanks so much for joining us, Courtney. Thank you so much for having me, Bonnie. 